Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm Kara Smith. Today, I'm joined by Dr. T. Siana Leal. Last year, Dr. Leal chaired a CME NCPD activity focused on immunotherapy-based strategies for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Today, she'll be sharing the updates that have occurred in the field since recording this activity. So thanks so much for joining today, Dr. Leal. To start off, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Hi, I'm Dr. Tisana Leal. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an associate professor of medicine and director of a thoracic medical oncology program. I mainly see patients with thoracic malignancies in clinical uh, practice and also conduct clinical trials from phase one to phase three. Great. So what are some of the new developments in immunotherapy for advanced NSCLC that have occurred since this activity was recorded last March? The field of thoracic oncology is moving quite rapidly. And even since we last recorded our um, podcast and a video of advances in immunotherapy and non-small cell lung cancer, we've had new approvals of therapies in the front line for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. For example, we now have approval of a regimen called the Poseidon regimen, which led to the approval of the combination of chemotherapy with immunotherapy with a pdl one inhibitor called Dervalumab in combination with a CTLA-4 inhibitor, tremolumumab in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer whose tumors do not harbor an EGFR or ALK alteration. So another strategy in the front line using a CTLA-4 inhibitor for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. We've also had approval of another agent in combination with chemotherapy, semiplumab, Semiplumab was previously approved as monotherapy, and now we have approval of semiplumab, a PDL1 inhibitor in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy for advanced non-small cell lung cancer in the frontline setting. Based on our last presentation, um, I had discussed the excitement around terigolumab, an anti-tigit um, antibody used in frontline in combination with atezolizumab. We had some really promising data based on the cityscape which was a phase two trial really demonstrating some promising results in patients with PDL1 high expression. Since then, we've had readout of one of the co-primary endpoints of the Skyscraper 1 trial, which actually demonstrated that the combination of terigolumab with atezolizumab in patients with high PDL1 tumor expression did not meet the co-primary endpoint of progression-free survival. However, we're still rating, uh, waiting on the readout of overall survival, and terigolumab or anti-tigit is still in development for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Lastly, another interesting um, development that has occurred, we talked about some promising strategies in second line, looking at how to overcome immunotherapy resistance for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, and talked about the VEGF pathway as a potential interesting pathway to um, target in combination with immunotherapy, we saw the results of a study um, presented at ASCO 2022, as well as now published in the JCO, investigating the combination of pembrolizumab with ramucirumab, hitting VEGF as a target there to overcome resistance to IO, and saw that that was a positive study in a randomized phase two setting demonstrating improved overall survival. And so that is a a really promising strategy that is moving forward in the phase three now. We have an ongoing talking about future trials 
Pragmatica um, as the next step to really confirm these results. Pragmatica is a study investigating the combination now of Pembro-RAM in the um, second line setting, looking at patients that have had prior immunotherapy. Awesome. That was such a comprehensive update to the trials that were talked about in the activity. So you touched upon some of the ongoing trials. So what are the developments that you're most looking forward to coming year? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of ongoing trials. Um, the um, second line and beyond space is, is a very rich field of active investigation, both including novel um, immunotherapy agents, but as well as adding other agents. So a lot of interest in seeing the readouts of some of the studies that are looking at PARP inhibitors in combination with immunotherapy. Um, we have seen uh, and talked about this in our uh, presentation, uh, the SAFFIRE study, which is randomized phase three trial combining citrovatinib with nivolumab versus docetaxel in previously treated patients. That randomized phase three study has completed accrual and we're waiting for the readout as well. Um, and, and certainly there's a lot of interest in continuing to improve on outcomes with um, ADCs or antibody drug conjugates. That's a rich field of active investigation. These agents are not only being investigated in second line and beyond, but also being investigated in frontline in combination with immunotherapy. In addition, we're also combining immunotherapy with targeted agents. We're seeing, you know, results of studies combining, for example, immunotherapy with KRAS inhibitors, um, a lot of interest in continuing to build upon the success, both of immunotherapy as well as targeted therapy as well. Um, there are multiple studies that are ongoing that would be too numerous to, to, to tell you about, but those are some of the interesting strategies that I think I'm looking forward to seeing uh, read out in 2023 and beyond. Awesome. Are you currently involved in any clinical trials or research that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think doing research and doing um, clinical care are, are really what drives me to do what I do every day. And so some of the efforts that that I'm working on with our multidisciplinary team at Emory um, include um, investigating, again, we're, we're involved in these frontline trials, looking at ADCs, so really looking at the combination of ADCs, we have the Tropion study. The Tropion study is um, now moving forward in the phase three setting. So Dato DXD is a really interesting uh, agent that is moving forward as a trope two ADC now in the frontline setting. In addition, we also have some ISTs or investigator-initiated trials looking at combining immunotherapy, for example, with IL-2, looking at some biomarker endpoints. In addition, we have studies in the second line uh, setting and beyond, looking at, um, for example, the combination of pembrolizumab, ramsurumab, and docetaxel. This is a single-arm phase two study that we're conducting at Emory. I also conduct studies in phase two and phase three in small cell lung cancer. Um, currently, we have also some interesting studies in that space as well, which we really didn't talk about in our presentation, but there's a lot of interest in combining immune checkpoint inhibitors with other agents to overcome resistance in small cell lung cancer. 
We also have another agent called Lurbanectidin, which is approved in small cell. We have an investigator-initiated trial combining Lurbanectidin with radiation. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting efforts that are ongoing. Um, I did conduct a study while I was at the University of Wisconsin, which was a randomized phase three study investigating tumor treating fields which is um, delivered using a device. Uh, this is uh, electric fields that interfere with mitosis and lead to uh, immunogenic cell death as well. This study is a randomized phase three study called the Lunar Study that randomized patients to tumor treating fields in combination with immunotherapy or docetaxel versus the standard of care. And this study has recently had a press release demonstrating that this met the primary endpoint of overall survival. And so we'll be talking more about this at future meetings and excited to present these results. Great, those will all be so exciting to see. My last question is, do you have any strategies for balancing the efficacy of all of these novel immunotherapies with their potential toxicities? So I think one of the ongoing challenges of treating patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer continue to be biomarker selection I think PDL1 is our main biomarker. We do need better biomarkers to really tease out, you know, should we be using monotherapy? Should we be using combination strategies? We're looking at now studies trying to really hone in on the impact of, for example, SDK11, KEEP1, and commutations in immunotherapy resistance. And I think one important way to balance out you know, toxicities and benefits is really identifying which patient needs combination strategies. So with biomarker selection. So I think um, future trials should continue to look at that because monotherapy for sure is certainly very well tolerated and is associated with, you know, excellent quality of life and efficacy. If we can really hone in beyond PDL1, who are the patients that are most likely to derive benefit versus who really needs, you know, the combination strategy of a quadruplet regimen, such as what we saw in Checkmate 9LA or now the Poseidon or, you know, Empower 150, where you're combining four drugs for a patient with advanced non-small cell lung cancer who may have multiple comorbidities um, and is struggling with symptoms from their disease. So I think biomarkers is definitely a big one. Um, the other thing I think is, is very important is, is monitoring. Um, while patients are receiving frontline therapy with immunotherapy or immunotherapy combinations, it's really important to educate the patient and their family members in terms of potential for side effects and immune-related adverse events that they can occur at any time, even after you discontinue therapy. So educating patients on when to call, um, not to wait, um, and to have sort of check-in methods with the patient to make sure that we're recognizing these immune-related adverse events early is really important and crucial in allowing patients to continue on their therapies if they're benefiting from them and avoiding, you know, escalation of these side effects to more severe side effects. The third key point, I think, is really working as a multi-D team and getting specialists in early to give their opinions and to help manage some of these immune-related adverse events. So working with pulmonary pneumonitis, working with GI and colitis, you know, derm, with skin toxicities and so on. So increasingly, I think other specialists getting involved early in the management of our patients when they develop these immune-related adverse events, I think is also really important. That's really great advice. And this was such a really comprehensive update.
So thank you so much for sharing all these exciting advances today. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and treatment. I am Katie Cook from i3Health. Immunotherapy has transformed the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer in recent years. However, challenges remain in distinguishing the efficacies of novel therapies and in managing immune-mediated adverse events. This episode of Oncology Data Advisor will focus on harnessing immunotherapy-based strategies for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. It features perspectives from two noted experts in the field, Dr. Tiziana Leal, Director of the Thoracic Medical Oncology Program at Emory University Winship Cancer Institute, and Ms. Beth Sandy, Thoracic Oncology Nurse Practitioner at the University of Pennsylvania Abramson Cancer Center. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. Free CME and NCPD credit are available for this podcast. To claim credit and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen NSCLC hyphen immunotherapy. Hello, I'm Dr. Tiziana Leal. I'm an associate professor and director of the Thoracic Medical Oncology Program. Um, I'm at Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University. And I'm Beth Sandy. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're honored to be here today to talk to you about some really interesting topics in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. We're going to make this uh, pretty interactive and talking about harnessing immunotherapy-based strategies for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Here are my disclosures and also including Beth's disclosures as well. So the learning objectives of today's talk include to distinguish patient selection criteria for immunotherapy in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, to evaluate emerging efficacy and safety data on immunotherapy-based strategies for advanced non-small cell lung cancer without driver mutations, to assess supportive care plans to control immune-mediated adverse events and optimize survivorship in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So let's start out with a case. This is a patient who's a 66-year-old female who presented with worsening shortness of breath on exertion and a cough of two months duration. This is a patient without any significant medical history, and she's a former smoker with a 40-pack year smoking history and quit in 2021. Here are her scans demonstrating, as you can see here, a large right-sided lung mass with a right-sided pleural effusion, mediastinal adenopathy, as well as a pericardial effusion. This patient was admitted for management and diagnostic workup, which included a pericardiosynthesis and a thoracynthesis for both diagnostic as well as therapeutic purposes. In addition, a bronchoscopy was performed, pathology was positive for adenocarcinoma, and so given the 
presence of both pleural and pericardial fluid. This patient did have positive cytology. So this was uh, staged as stage four with M1A disease. Additional staging workup included an MRI of the brain, which was negative for metastatic disease. In addition, this patient had biomarker testing. NGS was performed with a broad-based panel that investigated both tumor DNA and RNA panel, and it demonstrated a KRAS G12C mutation, as well as high pdl one tumor expression of 70%. Here is the PET scan, again, demonstrating a positive uh, PET uptake or hypermetabolism in the right lung here, as you can see, a large right-sided lung mass. And as you can see here, we can also uh, see hypermetabolism in the mediastinum, including with contralateral um, hypermetabolism in mediastinal nodes and bilateral pleural effusion. And this is an interesting point I'd like to make that the initial CT scan really didn't demonstrate evidence of distant metastatic disease. But as you can see here on the PET scan, she actually has evidence of abdominal and retroperitoneal adenopathy, which this is still stage four, but changes it from M1A to M1C. So this patient has advanced disease with stage four adenocarcinoma of the right lung with disease in the um, uh, mediastinum, bilateral pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, as well as abdominal and retroperitoneal adenopathy. And what are the next steps in this patient's care? So which patient characteristics, tumor features, and molecular biomarkers inform your management plans? Dr. Leal, tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, increasingly the selection of treatment options for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer really are um, based on several factors, and it's putting pieces of a puzzle together. One very important factor, obviously, is histology. Does this patient have non-small cell versus small cell lung cancer? And what is the histology in the case of non-small cell lung cancer? 85% of the patients have non-small cell lung cancer. Of these, adenocarcinoma is certainly the most um, common type of histology that we see. And that has implications in the backbone of the chemotherapy agent that we use. For example, in adenocarcinoma, the backbone includes pemetrexid-based chemotherapy. And then importantly, we want to know if that tumor has a targetable mutation. It is very important at the beginning of the patient's diagnosis and workup to perform broad-based NGS testing. And we have the option of doing this in the blood or in the tissue to really identify whether or not a patient has targetable mutation in their tumor. In our patient's case, this patient has a KRAS G12C mutation. But other factors also include the PDL1 expression on the tumor. And we'll talk about how PDL1 expression also helps us select patients for their optimal treatment strategy. Additionally, we look at does this patient have high symptom burden? Um, is this patient very symptomatic? What is the extent of the disease in terms of organ involvement? Is there CNS involvement? That's also very important to understand right at the front. So the brain MRI is very important to do. Does this patient have good performance status? What are the comorbidities? 
Does this patient have a history of autoimmune disease or transplant? And then certainly looking at the patient's goals of care and having a discussion about patient wishes and informed decision-making is very important, especially in the palliative care setting where patients may have different strategies or goals in their care. So let's talk about predictive biomarkers. We talked about PDL1 expression, and biomarkers are extremely important in the management and treatment of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, and really has been um, paramount to do right up front. So predictive biomarkers are used because they help us um, understand the likelihood of response to immunotherapy regimens. And so PDL1 expression has been, although not a perfect biomarker, certainly the most reliable biomarker that we currently have and the one with the most track record in helping us select patients for the best treatment strategy. So PDL1 tumor expression is something that is considered standard of care and is done up front. And in addition, we also have um, looked at tumor mutational burden in tissue, as well as tumor mutational burden in blood. And TMB, both in tissue and blood, in immunotherapy trials, have been an indirect way of looking at um, the uh, mutation burden in terms of uh, epitopes that may help us understand response to immunotherapy, but they haven't really panned out in the clinical setting for non-small cell lung cancer because of the fact that they haven't really correlated with overall survival, but have been able to demonstrate an improvement in progression-free survival, especially when you use it as um, a predictive biomarker with immunotherapy alone. So for the purpose of these talk, for this talk, we'll really use PDL1 expression as our main biomarker to help select patients for therapy. So both PDL1 expression and TMB have been seen as uh, strategies, but really PDL1 in the tumor is the best way to go. And tumor PDL1 expression um, is done in a lot of different ways. There are different biomarker assays that we've used. Some of them look at positive PDL1 expression in the tumor cells. Sometimes they also add the immune cells and we've had different cutoffs in different studies. But I think the bottom line is we looked at all the different biomarker assays that have been used for PDL1 expression. There seems to be pretty good concordance between the, the different biomarkers that we've been using, the different assays. The most common one that we use is the two to C3 um, that has been used in studies, but the SP263 is also another one that has been used. And we have treatments that are approved in the setting using these different assays. And about a third of the patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer have tumors whose PDL1 is negative or less than 1%. About um, a third have what we call PDL1 low expression, which is 1 to 49%. And about a third have high levels of PDL1 expression, considered high 50% or greater. And again, these are just taking data from the clinical trials that have been done in the phase three setting in the front line for non small cell lung cancer. So, thank you for that. Let's um, shift gears a little bit and talk about how does PDL1 expression drive your choice of immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy in these patients? So let's talk about that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of interest in what is the optimal therapy in the frontline setting. This has certainly have, uh, this has been a space that we've had a lot of data, a lot of new agents, a lot of combinations. And honestly, there is no 
perfect answer for this because you really have to take into account all of the different factors that we mentioned previously. But thinking about this in sort of a, a uh, an algorithm type approach to simplify our discussion and to help us think about what do we do with a patient that is in front of us that needs treatment. If a patient has advanced non-small cell lung cancer that is treatment naive, and we've done NGS testing, it did not show a driver mutation that we can act on in the frontline setting, we look at the pdl one expression. And most commonly, we are looking at pdl one expression on the tumor and looking at these differential cutoffs. If a patient has PDL1 expression less, less PDL1 expression less than 1% or PDL1 negative, the strategy there in general has been to use chemoimmunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy in combination with bevacizumab, which is an anti-VEGF antibody or blocking the uh, blood uh, vessels of the tumor. If patients also have PDL1 negative expression, we have the combination of chemo plus immunotherapy with the addition of an anti-CTLA-4 antibody, which is a ipilimumab. If the patient has PDL1 low expression, 1 to 49%, a lot of the times we go in the same sort of pathway like the PDL1 negative expressors, but we do have the approval of monotherapy pembrolizumab in that space as well, and we'll talk about that. If a patient has high PDL1 expression, certainly all of these options can also be employed depending on other patient factors, but using uh, monotherapy, immunotherapy as monotherapy experience has also been very good with excellent overall survival and um, tolerability as well. So let's talk a little bit about these uh, results. So how does PDL1 expression drive our choice of therapy? Um, certainly, we have guidance from major uh, clinical trials in the phase three setting that have been completed and now have longer term follow up data. On the left, you're seeing the results of Keynote 24 and the overall survival demonstrating that in this trial for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer that were treatment naive with high PDL1 expression with the PDL1 expression of 50% or greater, there's a significant benefit of pembrolizumab monotherapy, which is a PDL1 inhibitor, a PD1 inhibitor versus chemotherapy, which, which is a platinum-based combination. And here is what we're seeing is improved overall survival with the best five-year overall survival that we've seen compared to historical controls with 30% overall survival for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer versus the standard of care chemotherapy. We also have results of two additional trials in the phase three setting with monotherapy experience. The Empower 110 study demonstrated the benefit of atezolizumab, a PDL1 inhibitor versus chemotherapy with the high PDL1 expression now using the SP142 antibody. And then on the right, you're seeing the most recent approval for an agent in the monotherapy experience, this is semiplumab and semiplumab versus chemotherapy demonstrating again, similar benefits there with improved overall survival of the monotherapy agent PD-1 or PDL1 inhibitor versus chemotherapy. Interesting data from the Empire Lung One study shows also that there is a continued increasing benefit the higher the PDL1 expression. So the higher the PDL1, there seems to be the higher the benefit of using these agents in the frontline setting for patients and really have established them as the backbone for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. 
Now, what about differential cutoffs of PDL1 expression? This is a slide with the results of Keynote 42, which included patients with PDL1 expression of 1% or greater. In this study, in the phase three setting, uh, evaluated pembrolizumab versus standard of care chemotherapy, showing that for patients with high PDL1 expression, there's an improved overall survival of pembrolizumab monotherapy, a PD-1 inhibitor versus chemotherapy. However, when they looked at differential cutoffs in an exploratory analysis in the PDL1 low expressors, which is the 1 to 49%, as you can see there, there isn't a significant benefit of pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. And the benefit really seems to be driven by the high PDL1 expressors, as you can see on the left, which is the 50% or greater. So although the pembrolizumab monotherapy uh, is an option for patients with PDL1 1%, or higher, you really can see that the benefit really is in the high expressors. We also have data now from combination strategy, adding nivolumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, in combination with ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. This study, uh, Checkmate 227, investigated this combination versus the standard of care chemotherapy. In this study, met its primary endpoint. It is an approved regimen for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer with PDL1 1% or greater. And here was what we're showing is now, again, extended follow-up, a four-year update of overall survival, demonstrating here the improved overall survival benefit of this combination strategy of NEVO plus IPI versus the standard of care, which is chemotherapy. And this is seen in the PDL1 1% or greater population, as you can see here, with a median overall survival with a NEVO plus IP of 17.1 months versus chemotherapy, 14.9 months. And interestingly here in this um, study was that although this wasn't powered for overall survival, the PDL1 negative population had a significant benefit, as you can see here, from NEVO plus IP versus chemotherapy with a median overall survival of NEVO plus AP of 17.2 months versus 12.2 months in chemotherapy. So although this regimen was not approved for the PDL1 negative population, when we look at this data, you know, the PDL1 negative population typically have had, you know, challenges in terms of less benefit from immunotherapy strategies. And as you can see here, the median OS looks pretty good in the PDL1 negative population and, and raises a lot of op optimism of, you know, can this strategy be employed in the PDL1 negative population? More to come in terms of that is this has not been prospective, prospectively validated. So when do we consider chemoimmunotherapy? Well, we talked about how the data looks really excellent for the PDL1 high expressors and how the benefit in the monotherapy experience seems to really be driven by the high expressors. We now have several other trials looking at chemoimmunotherapy combinations that have led to approval of this strategy in patients independent of PDL1 expression. So Keynote 189 investigated the combination of carboplatin pemetrexed and pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy, as you can see here. And this is an approved strategy for patients um, with non-squamous histology independent of PDL1 expression. So this is a common regimen that we use for the PDL1 low or negative population. Keynote 407 is a similar study, but now investigating a combination of chemo 
immunotherapy with uh, platinum and taxane versus chemotherapy in the squamous cell population, also showing a benefit for the strategy independent of pdl one expression. In addition to that, we have two other strategies that are approved, Empower 150, adding now an anti-VEGF agent, bevacizumab, and also Empower 130, again, in the non-small cell lung cancer population, adding chemoimmunotherapy with atezolizumab. These are all approved regimens and are all used in the front line. I would say that it's very important to rule out the driver mutations, and this is irrespective of pdl one expression and the overall survival was seen and really important in all of these trials for the combination strategy. So in terms of what do we do next, you know, for patients with non-small cell lung cancer without a driver mutation, we've seen significant benefit for the addition of immunotherapy. And unfortunately, though, a lot of patients end up having progression of their disease despite this enthusiasm and great outcomes for some patients, a lot of patients actually will require additional therapy beyond their frontline strategy. If a patient has had uh, immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy, then has progression of their disease, the next line of treatment is docetaxel plus minus ramucirumab, and this is based on the REVEL study. Ramucirumab is an agent that uh, blocks VEGF, again, using that VEGF strategy. If that wasn't used in the front line, this is certainly a strategy in the second line experience. However, if a patient initially had monotherapy, meaning they got pembrolizumab or atezolizumab or semiplumab in the frontline setting as a single agent immunotherapy agent, then certainly the next step is to add um, the platinum combination. And when I say add, um, I mean switch. So they go on to combination of platinum plus uh, pemetrexid if they're non-squamous, platinum plus ataxane if they are squamous. And then certainly um, there's a lot of questions about should you add the immunotherapy there? And that's a clinical trial question that we'll address later in terms of should we be continuing immunotherapy upon progression? But here is another important step to take in this point of care for your patient. If this patient did not have a driver mutation that you could act on in frontline, really have to now consider, is there a targeted therapy agent available here in the second line setting? Our patient specifically, going back to our case, had a KRAS G12C mutation. We now have approval of a targeted therapy agent for patients with KRAS G12C mutation in the second line. Sorasib has now been FDA approved, and we have other agents um, in development, such as Adagrasib, that are um, also being developed in this space. And now we also have approval for patients with EGFR exon 20 mutations. So if a patient received their frontline therapy with platinum, pemetrexid, and immunotherapy plus minus, and they have an EGFR exon 20 uh, mutation, we now have approval of two agents in the second line, mobocertinib, as well as amavantamab are agents that are used in this setting. So here's just additional data for NCCN guidelines talking about, you know, what are the subsequent lines of therapies? And certainly NCCN is a very useful resource to look at strategies for our patients. And I think in the U.S., it's uncommon that patients did not have uh, immunotherapy in the frontline setting. But certainly if the patient has not had immunotherapy in the frontline setting, they are eligible to receive immunotherapy in the second line setting.
And then there are other agents um, for cytotoxic chemotherapy. Docetaxel is our most common second-line agent. However, if a patient has non-squamous and if they did not receive a pemetrexid-based regimen in the front line, pemetrexid is another agent that is um, uh, approved in the second line space if they didn't receive it previously. And then in addition, gemcitabine or albumin-bound paclitaxel are also strategies to use in the second line setting, depending on their uh, frontline chemotherapy-containing regimen. Similarly here for squamous cell carcinoma, you know, a little bit of a different story, just pemetrexid is not used for the squamous cell population, but applies, you know, everything that we talked about in the prior slide. And then, you know, here again is talking about progression. I think it's very important to think about where the patient's at in their clinical course, you know, assessing performance status, assessing goals of care, getting palliative care involved. Is this the time to think about a clinical trial? Um, Beth, what is your experience in this setting here when we're at this point of transition, right? The patient may have received chemoimmunotherapy. Now they're kind of moving on to their second line strategy, maybe it's docetaxel, maybe it's docetaxel plus RAM, their performance status may be declining. Tell us kind of your experience in, in managing patients at this point in conversations about palliative care too. Yeah, I think it's hard because it really depends on their performance status to a big degree. And um, at my institution, generally we're trying to enroll them on a clinical trial at this point because we have clinical trials that are now looking at, you know, other types of immune checkpoint pathways. So generally that's what we're trying to do, but you're right. In the absence of them being eligible for a clinical trial, we're generally moving to something like docetaxel plus or minus ramucirumab um, if indicated. Um, you can look at one of these other um, agents as well, depending on if the patient has some contraindication receiving them, like really bad neuropathy or some kind of reason they can't get a VEGF inhibitor. Um, but yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard place to be in after they've progressed. The other thing sometimes we'll like to do is maybe if they're adenocarcinoma is recheck their molecular testing and maybe see if, if there's something we missed the first time around, or if they've developed something that might be targetable. Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, I think this is, you know, sort of the time to kind of review everything, make sure your NGS panel is broad and has covered all the new agents and new targets that are in development. Is there an opportunity there for a clinical trial strategy, um, readdress goals of care, and kind of just have a real discussion about here are our options and how do we move forward? So great points. So let's move on to the maintenance question. And kind of stepping back into the maintenance strategy, I think this is a very um, common uh, sort of pathway that, you know, we decide with patients with the use of immunotherapy in the frontline plus minus chemotherapy, the majority of the frontline trials included a maintenance strategy. So I think this is our standard of care for patients who receive frontline immunotherapy with pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, or semiplumab. The uh, strategy is to continue the immune checkpoint inhibitor um, ongoing for up to two years. 
And I would say that's a, a strategy that in clinical practice is very common unless there is a contraindication or patient has different wishes. And I think it kind of goes to the quality of life question and monitoring of immune mediated adverse events that we'll talk about with you, uh, Beth. And then in terms of you know, if you do chemoimmunotherapy, again, you know, there's a, a strategy there for uh, maintenance. If a patient receives, for example, carboplatin pemetrexid pembrolizumab, the strategy based on Keynote 189 is to continue on with a maintenance strategy of pemetrexid and pembrolizumab. If patients receive a taxane, though, they continue on with pembrolizumab monotherapy. And then certainly with the Nevo plus IPI regimen, patients continue on um, with the maintenance strategy. And then if they have chemoimmunotherapy with um, Checkmate 9LA, which is a strategy that also adds Nevo plus IPI, patients continue on with maintenance. So the majority of patients have ongoing strategy. So it's a long treatment course that requires to continue to pay attention to management of immune-mediated AEs, quality of life, and issues related to survivorship that we'll address with Beth. Now, in the second line setting, again, I think for patients who don't receive immunotherapy in the front line, which is sort of a, a rare population at this point in the U.S., all of the trials had approval of immunotherapy and to continue on treatment until progression. With the chemotherapy strategy, I would say that the maintenance strategy is, you know, the evidence is stronger for pemetrexid maintenance. And if patients receive bevacizumab initially, they can continue on with bev maintenance. But for the other strategies with ataxane and gemcitabine, I tend to shy away from a maintenance strategy in that situation, given the lack over, of overall survival benefit and also concerns about, you know, cumulative toxicity with these chemotherapy agents in the um, maintenance uh, strategy setting. So what about post-progression? I think this is another strategy for patients who receive immunotherapy. So we've had a lot of data that mainly have been retrospective in nature about when patients are on immunotherapy and they have progression of their cancer in multiple tumor, multiple tumor types, there can be a benefit of continuing on immunotherapy. This has been shown in melanoma, in renal cell, and also in non-small cell lung cancer, that perhaps there's a subset of patients there that may have a benefit from continuing immunotherapy upon progression. This isn't a standard approach, but I think it is being done in clinical practice. We have some data from the OAK study. The OAK study was a study that was done in the phase three setting in the second line, comparing a tezolizumab, a PDL1 inhibitor versus docetaxel, and led to the approval of a tezolizumab in the second line setting. But they actually did an interesting analysis looking at patients post progression that received a tezolizumab. Um, and continued on a tezolizumab versus the patients who are on the docetaxel arm. And what you can see here is that in the OAK study, for patients who had post-progression immunotherapy beyond progression, they actually had an improved 
uh, overall survival with atezolizumab. You can see the 18-month overall survival is 26% versus 18%. Keep in mind, this was not a randomized strategy, but this is interesting data showing, again, that perhaps here there is a signal that, you know, continuing immunotherapy beyond progression may be a strategy for some patients, and we're active, actively investigating this in some of the trials that Beth mentioned about how do we move forward with immunotherapy-resistant patients, can we sort of change the biology of the, their disease such that they could still benefit from immunotherapy beyond progression? So further research is, uh, is warranted, and this is an area of active investigation. So what are some future directions and novel combinations that we can look forward to? Great. So let's talk about some strategies. I think one of the things that um, is an area of active investigation in the frontline setting is, can we use other agents that can synergize with PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors and improve the outcomes for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer? And this is an agent that is in current uh, now phase three trial, but this was the initial result of the phase two study with a new agent called teragolumab. This is an anti-tigit antibody. So by blocking tigit, you're actually sort of improving um, immune activation and synergizing hopefully with atezolizumab with pdl one inhibitor. This study is a phase two randomized strategy for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer who have tumor pdl one uh, positive of 1% or greater, and they're randomized one-to-one to teragolumab plus atezolizumab versus placebo in combination with atezolizumab. In this study, crossover is not allowed, and the primary endpoints here are overall response rate as well as progression-free survival. And what we're seeing here is the improved outcomes of this strategy. And the benefit was seen in the PDL1, 1% or greater population. But I'm highlighting here the benefit in the PDL1 high expressors or 50% or greater. On the left, you see here the overall survival is improved with Tera plus atezolizumab versus atezolizumab plus placebo. And as you can see here, the 12 month rate is 81.9% with Tera plus Atezo versus 56.1% in the um, placebo plus Atezolizumab. So this strategy is moving forward actually in the phase three setting, looking really at the PDL1 high expressors. So there's an ongoing study in the phase three setting looking at Tera plus atezolizumab versus placebo plus atezolizumab to really answer that question. And this would be another interesting strategy for patients in the frontline setting that's a chemotherapy-free regimen. And tergolumab in combination with atezo so far has been a strategy that has been well tolerated. There are other ongoing phase three trials investigating the combination of anti-PD-1 plus anti-TIGIT that are shown here at the bottom of the slide. So what about the VEGF strategy? We've talked about um, how the VEGF strategy is a well um, sort of vetted strategy in non-small cell lung cancer. We have the approval of bevacizumab in the front line with chemoimmunotherapy based on Empower 150. We also have the approval of a VEGF agent um, based on the REVEL study with docetaxel plus uh, ramucirumab in the second line setting. Can we use bevacizumab or agents like bevacizumab to 
rev up the immune system and really sort of capitalized on um, that that blocking that happens at the level of the tumor microenvironment by adding agents that target the VEGF pathway. To the right here, what I'm showing is several agents um, that have VEGF activity, such as cabozantinib, citrovatinib, and lymvantinib. These are all agents that have known VEGF activity. And as you can see here on the left, you know, the VEGF uh, sort of history in the preclinical setting is that when you block VEGF, you can decrease the regulatory T cells and these uh, myelosuppressive cells that happen that create this um, immunosuppressed microenvironment. But beyond that, we think that perhaps by blocking um, the TAM kinase inhibition may also be another strategy that can improve outcomes by increasing the number of circulating and tumor infiltrating CD8 positive T cells, and also helping promote this phenotypic transition from M2 to M1, which is an immune stimulating phenotype. And these strategies are ongoing. And I'll highlight some of the trials that are happening in this space in the second line setting. One strategy that we've been involved in is the combination of citrovatinib and nivolumab. Citrovatinib is a TKI or tyrosine kinase inhibitor that hits multiple targets, including VEGF and TAM. And there's some encouraging overall survival data that we've presented in patients who have advanced non-small cell lung cancer, have had prior benefit from immunotherapy, and then have progression on their prior immunotherapy and chemotherapy strategy. And we've shown, and this was presented um, and updated at ASCO that the addition of citrovatinib plus nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, has led to benefit in patients that have been previously treated with a promising overall survival of 18.1 months. And this is compared to historical controls, you know, the overall survival with docetaxel as a single agent has been more in the order of eight to 10 months. Certainly this is um, a study that has been completed. We're now looking at the phase three experience with docetaxel versus now citrovatinib plus nivolumab. This is an ongoing phase three strategy that is really trying to answer this question. There are other studies in this space investigating the combination of immunotherapy plus agents targeting VEGF. We are going to see the results of Pembro plus RAM, Ramasurumab, that is a lung map trial as well, and more results are, are forthcoming at our upcoming meetings. So this is some of the basic conclusion criteria for citrovatinib in combination with nivolumab versus docetaxel. And another, I think, important thing that is coming out of these trials and of our own clinical experiences, how do we define immunotherapy resistance? And when do you move on to the next agent? And here's another strategy that is also ongoing. This is the LEAP study also including levantinib in combination with pembrolizumab. This is a study that has shown some promising initial overall response rate here with the combination of levantinib plus pembrolizumab. And now this is actually moving forward in the frontline setting. So we're combining levantinib with pembro and pemetrexid now in a strategy that is in the frontline setting. So this study is also ongoing. What about combining PARP inhibitors with checkpoint inhibitors? This is another interesting strategy. PARP inhibitors are approved in several disease types, including ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and pancreatic cancer. But here, uh, looking at PARP inhibition, um, 
The reason to include it with PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors is that in the preclinical setting, agents like olaparib have upregulated PD-L1 expression and enhanced PD-1 binding. And perhaps that may lead to synergy and improved activity of PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. And so here are some additional data now in triple negative breast cancer cells, demonstrating that when you use PARP inhibition with immune checkpoint inhibitors, as you can see here in the preclinical setting, breast cancer syngenaic uh, uh, mice model, you can see here that at the bottom, the red graph is the addition of Olaparib, a, uh, a PARP inhibitor in combination with PDL1 inhibitor, showing that you can decrease tumor growth, demonstrating potentially the synergy there between um, PD1, PDL1 inhibitors, and PARP inhibition. So we have ongoing studies in earlier phase development adding niraparib and pembrolizumab in patients with um, non small cell lung cancer. And what we've seen so far is promising overall response rates. But one thing to kind of consider when you add PARP inhibitors is the possibility of additional adverse events. Myelosuppression was seen in patients 23.5% of the time in uh, the cohort with high PDL1 expression and 28.6% in patients with low PDL1 expression. Additional side effects include pneumonia and fatigue. So here's some additional data of this experience of niraparib and pembrolizumab showing some interesting activity with durable responses and promising progression-free survival in this population of patients. Here you see the median duration of response of 19.7 months in the high PDL1 expressors, 9.4 months in the low PDL1 expressors. And the median PFS, as you can see here, also improved in the high PDL1. 8.4 months, and then in the low PDL1, 4.2 months. And again, this strategy is moving ahead, and results are still um, going to be reported at future meetings. So let's move on to talking about managing some of the side effects and some practical considerations for patients on active therapy. Beth, why don't you take over? Yeah, thank you so much for all of that great information. So it's great to talk about how good all these drugs are, but what if they're completely intolerable, um, which luckily is not the case. Generally, um, immunotherapy has been relatively a very tolerable treatment for patients. So here what we have is the three single agent immunotherapy trials um, that were looked at in those patients um, with high PD-L1 expression across the board. So you can see hypothyroidism is upwards of 10% of patients um, for any grade. And I think that's pretty consistent with what I would see in practice. Um, but it almost, it's very rare, almost never really, that we would see severe hypothyroidism that is requiring us to hold and discontinue drug. Usually it's very manageable um, with um, replacement. Um, the other thing that I would comment on here is pneumonitis. So this is something that we see more commonly in patients with lung cancer as opposed to other solid tumors receiving these agents, but still very relatively low numbers. Um, in these trials was reported at about uh, five to 6% or less. Um, but you can see there certainly is grade three, four, and five toxicities here. So these can be severe and we'll look at a case study. Um, you know, hepatitis and rash generally have been manageable. I'm not really sure why in the Empower 110 trial that these numbers um, for any grade seem to be more than others. I can't say that I've seen that in clinical practice. Um, 
you know, I mainly use this in the small cell setting, um, but with chemotherapy and haven't really seen that significant um, numbers of hepatitis or rash with the tezolizumab. Dr. Leal, I don't know if you've seen that significant number. I'm not sure why it was reported that high in the trial. Any comment on that? Yeah, I agree with you. My experience mirrors what you're describing in your experience as well. I haven't really had um, high rates of, you know, hepatitis with any of these agents, but it's something that we certainly keep an eye on and monitor. Yep. Okay. And then looking at combination chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors um, really didn't significantly increase our immune related adverse events. Now, clearly some of these patients are getting platinum, so they may have GI toxicity such as nausea and myelosuppression. But if you look at the immune related adverse events, it doesn't appear that adding chemotherapy really significantly increased this. So you see again, the hypothyroidism being one of the more common ones um, upwards, you know, six to 10% of patients slightly higher in the, um, the last trial there containing bevacizumab, um, but certainly within what we would normally see, um, even with just single agent immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Um, pneumonitis again, very similar, if not less with adding chemotherapy, uh, again, really under five to 6% in most of these trials. Again, some of it grade three, four. Rash, very minimal for us generally. Um, this tends to be more uh, for patients with other solid tumors, especially melanoma. But in lung cancer, we haven't seen usually significant rash. Again, not entirely clear why it was reported at almost 30% in that um, Empower 150, which has bevacizumab added to it, but bevacizumab doesn't typically cause rash. Um, so I'm not exactly clear why it was reported so high there. Um, when I've used that regimen, it's not something that I've seen significantly um, to occur. Then again, the hepatitis down there in that one to 2% range, um, again, was reported a little higher in these atezolizumab trials. Not exactly clear why, because it's not something I clinically see or would preclude me from using atezolizumab in my practice. Again, Dr. Leal, any comment on that? Yeah, I would say that in clinical practice, um, these regimens with the combination strategies, when you add chemo and immunotherapy, um, you see the side effects of the chemotherapy. I, I agree with you that I, I don't anecdotally, you know, recall having increased rates of immune adverse events when you add the combination strategies. So I think that you know, this kind of mirrors my clinical experience as well. The Empower 150 regimen is one that I use less commonly. You know, being BEV eligible is a population that is limited to, you know, not having any of the BEV contraindications. So I would say I use it about 20% of the time um, or consider it about 20% of the time. Um, here, the, the rash the, that is reported at 28.8%, assuming that's any grade attributed to the regimen, I agree with you, that seems high, but the severe rash is relatively low, 2.3%. Uh, and we can talk about management, but you know some of the grade three rash that I've seen in patients that is attributed to the immunotherapy can actually be re-challenged, and we can talk about that in terms of managing AEs as well. So certainly... There are side effects that we need to actively manage and monitor for, but I agree with you that all three of the regimens in, in our patient population overall translate into manageable side effects that we can keep patients on their therapy if they're benefiting. Great. And then the next slide, looking at um, ipinevo combinations or just nivolumab with chemotherapy, 
Um, so of course we're seeing more rash, um, with adding an anti-CTLA-4 drug, such as epilimumab, which we would expect, um, but not overwhelming, um, you know, again, less than 4% grade three, four, where you're having to hold or discontinue drug. Um, so generally this has been, these have been well-tolerated regimens, um, a little bit more colitis in the ipinevo arm and a little bit more pneumonitis than we would normally see. Again, we would expect it to be a little bit more of toxic regimen when you're adding two different immune checkpoint inhibitors um, together. So I think this is very um, similar to what I would see in practice if I was using these combinations. Um, again, I don't see anything here outside of the ipinevo that has a little bit higher immune-related adverse event rate. Nothing here would sway me one way or the other from a toxicity standpoint of whether or not to use these regimens. You know, I'd like to just make a comment about the Nevo-Ipi experience. Um, we now have two Nevo-Ipi containing regimens approved. We have Nevo-Ipi based on the Checkmate 227 data. We have the Nevo-Ipi with the short course of chemotherapy based on the Checkmate 9LA data and two approved regimens. Um, and while I agree that the rates of toxicity here don't seem to be increased compared to the other regimens that we've seen with all the caveats of cross-trial comparison, what I've come to sort of um, live with my patients is that sometimes the toxicities related to ipilimumab, although sort of the grade and the rates of the grade three, four are similar, I almost feel like there's a difference in about the quality of that toxicity and the recovery from that toxicity, you know, the adrenal insufficiency, the hypophysitis um, that can occur with impalumumab, although not common, is a significant clinical problem that we have to deal with and manage and all of the implications of having, you know, a toxicity that needs ongoing active management, you know, adrenal insufficiency, hypophysitis, and all the hormone replacements that we need to do. Now, the interesting thing about that is when they looked at data from the Checkmate 9LA, and they looked at patients who had discontinued their therapy for adverse events who had benefited from the regimen, they don't seem to have any detriment in outcomes. So that's certainly reassuring. Yeah. And I think what this goes back to is we have so many options, like you were talking about earlier, um, that is it worth risking more toxicity, even though it's low rates, but is it worth risking more toxicity and what would be the benefit, um, you know, to those disease, which many of these are fairly comparable data. So uh, it may not be worth risking that extra toxicity. So I just picked out a couple things to talk about. Um, this is a pneumonitis. This is a patient of mine who battled pneumonitis for almost a year. She developed it actually first in May of 2021. Um, and by September, we had gotten somewhat of control of it. You can see it a little bit peripherally there in both the right and left lung. Um, but by February, despite every treatment that we possibly could, um, you can see she had significantly advanced pneumonitis. And unfortunately, she succumbed to that a few weeks ago um, while her cancer was very stable. So with pneumonitis, we do see a higher incidence in patients with lung cancer, as opposed to other solid tumors, like I had said earlier. It can be life-threatening and debilitating, though generally it's not. Generally, we're able to manage it um, with corticosteroids, but, um, but it's something to certainly look out for. Knowing their baseline pulse oximetry is really important here because, you know, with patients with lung cancer, they may have underlying lung disease to begin with. So maybe they're used to having a pulse ox of 91 or 92% on room air um, versus someone who lives at 99% on room air and now is down to 90 or 91, 
that could be very different and and prompt us to think, oh, something might be wrong. We should check the CAT scan. Um, you know, we certainly work closely with our interventional pulmonary um, uh, colleagues, um, but really CT of the chest is needed for any new workup of new onset shortness of breath. And, you know, patient with lung cancer, that can mean pulmonary embolism, pleural effusion, pneumonia, pneumonitis nowadays. So all of these things, um, you know, really we need a CAT scan of the chest to work this up appropriately. How do we manage um, pneumonitis or when do we discontinue? So grade one has, has really been um, interesting in my practice because you don't technically have to hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor. Grade one generally means that they have radiographic toxic, uh, radiographic findings only, whether or not actually short of breath. And sometimes I've had a few of these cases where I look at the scan, I'm like, are you sure you're not out of breath? Oh no, I feel completely fine. But I'm nervous to keep going with that checkpoint inhibitor, knowing what I'm seeing there, that eventually they're going to be um, symptomatic of this. So uh, sometimes I'll repeat a chest CT sooner to see if that is advancing. Most of my cases, they've become symptomatic um, eventually, and then I have to start treating them um, with corticosteroids. The grade two toxicity means they are symptomatic at that point. So you're going to certainly hold checkpoint inhibitor therapy, um, treat with prednisone at one to two milligrams per kilogram, which is high, high doses um, if you do the math. Um, and then do the CT of the chest, possibly antibiotics um, at that point, because uh, they're kind of getting at high risk for pneumonia, though I don't necessarily do that in everyone. Really monitor them closely with pulse ox. Um, if there's no improvement, um, you know, in, in uh, two to three uh, days, then we should treat as a grade three. And then a grade three, four, really, in these patients is a permanent discontinuation. This means that they have severe symptoms, greater than 50% of the lung. Um, grade four, of course, is life-threatening. And for these patients, they generally require inpatient care, um, IV methylprednisolone. Um, and for these patients, we don't usually um, continue. Anything different, Dr. Leal, that you would have to comment there? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think these are excellent guidelines that we do follow them in clinical practice, and I will say that I have a low threshold to admit the symptomatic grade two patient. You know, if they are trending in the wrong direction, you know, a lot of times um, I'll intervene um, earlier rather than waiting the 72 hours just because some of these patients already have underlying lung uh, disease, COPD, um, and have a low threshold to start IV steroids. So I keep a very close eye on patients with symptomatic grade two pneumonitis and really consider you know, early admission if needed, if they're trending in the wrong direction. The other thing too is how important it is to collaborate with our different um, subspecialists in our field. So getting pulmonary input early, as you stated, is, is definitely very important. You know, if there's an opportunity there to do um, a bronchoscopy to really tease out the, the differential diagnosis, is this pneumonia, atypical pneumonia, you know, is this actually pneumonitis is very helpful too. And I've certainly worked closely with pulmonology to really get a better differential diagnosis. Um, one thing that I've seen, which is thankfully not very common, and you kind of mentioned that about your patient, is that patient who just can't get off the steroids and has sort of, they get through their acute phase and then they go on to develop like a chronic pneumonitis. And that is very challenging in the clinic um, because these are patients that 
in my clinical experience, function like they have interstitial lung disease. And so I manage those patients closely with pulmonary. And some of these patients have gone on to require chronic immunosuppression with agents such as mycophenolate. And so I think we need more data to really understand some of the predictors of who's going to have you know, the chronic toxicity, how do we really manage that chronic toxicity? Because a lot of the data that we have is extrapolation from the transplant data. Yeah, all good points. And then colitis is another one I wanted to touch on quickly. Um, Characterized by loose stools, of course, blood or mucus in the stools or abdominal pain and cramping is going to be in more severe cases. Um, the workup, of course, involves ruling out other causes like testing for C. diff or some other sort of bacteria. Um, consider ab, ab pelvis CT, which oftentimes I will get um, because a lot of times that can characterize it for us. I'm also a fan of sending the fecal calprotectin. Um, this serves as a nice marker to response to treatment. I've had a couple patients that I've been dealing with over the past six months that this has been really helpful um, in not only diagnosing with the, the very high fecal calprotectin, but giving me an idea of how severe it is and then if my treatments are working. So that's been kind of a, a good marker to do. You could consider colonoscopy, but most um, interventionalists are not going to want to put a scope in somebody's um, colon that's extremely inflamed. So um, I've used this kind of down the road um, if I'm dealing with chronic symptoms for them to get a better diagnosis, be sure that what I know what I'm treating. Um, but a lot of times we have to wait for it to calm down before getting a colonoscopy. So when to hold or discontinue? Again, um, a grade one toxicity is generally asymptomatic. How would you even find it? Maybe on a CT scan. You could consider holding, but you don't have to. Um, you can try just anti-diarrheal meds if they're just having mild diarrhea, like two to three stools a day. Um, but for those patients that are four to six stools over baseline, um, that's a grade two. They're having these colitis symptoms. Um, you would hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor and treat with the high-dose prednisone. And if no response in two to three days, consider adding infliximab or other meds uh, similar to this. So we really reach for um, the stronger immunosuppressants pretty quickly if they're not responding to prednisone. Um, grade three and grade four here are going to be more, much more severe. Um, for grade four, life-threatening, you're always going to permanently discontinue. But for grade three, this can be, um, you know, a little different. You would, um, especially if the patient is on um, an anti-CTLA-4 drug, such as ipilimumab, where they're going to have higher rates of this. Um, so you could consider resolution in some case. Um, you could consider resuming um, the uh PD-1 or PDL one checkpoint inhibitor in this case, but certainly not continuing anti-CTLA-4 if they had a pretty severe grade three toxicity. So this is really on a case-by-case -case basis here if you're going to re-challenge these patients. So a couple of things just to end with, if you are treating for immune-related adverse events and it resolves, do you re-challenge them? Well, technically you can for those certainly grade one and grade two and some grade three. It's very case by case. Like I was just saying, never re-challenge a grade four if it was life-threatening. Um, and this is just some of the rates that we've seen from a recent presentation at the Elect Target Therapies Conference where, um, you know, about half of patients did not get a subsequent immune-related adverse event after, um, you know, being treated for one and, and being re-challenged. About a quarter of them did get that recurrent IRAE and another quarter developed a new IRAE. But in general, these were grade one and two and fairly manageable. So um, I think the 
I think everything is case by case here, but um, I think it's reasonable to rechallenge these patients if they are at grade one or less um, after going down to at least 10 milligrams or less of prednisone. Um, so I think it's worth rechallenging. And we often do in my practice, Dr. Leal, do you often rechallenge them if they've responded pretty well to steroid therapy? Yeah, I think that's a really challenging question because although, you know, 50, 48% didn't have a subsequent IRE, you can also flip it the other way, right? When you rechallenge, it's kind of common to have either a new or recurrent immune-related AE. And I think, does it improve survival to keep going with the immunotherapy agent with the risk of flare that is significant, I think is the biggest question. Because um, for some patients, I think it's a very individual decision together that we make. And it also has to do with, as you stated, you know, how well did they respond to treating that AE? Did they come off steroids well and quickly and had their AEs resolve relatively in a, in a sort of quick fashion as one, you know, would expect and what kind of AE was it? And then importantly, where is their disease state? You know, are they having response to treatment? Are they kind of stable or progressing? How hard do you want to push on a therapy when a person is having significant toxicity from it. So I will say it's a very individualized approach um, for patients with grade three toxicity. I think I usually take the conservative approach and not rechallenge, especially if they're having disease response, you know, with immunotherapy, if you have a durable response, I tend to have a more conservative approach with a grade three toxicity and kind of wait and let everything kind of settle and see how long their response is going to last with their immunotherapy agent. For grade three colitis, I would tend to favor observation. For grade three rash, and if the patient is motivated, um, I have felt more comfortable rechallenging. Um, so I think it depends on the toxicity, but also where the disease state is. But I think my approach overall has, to be, has been to be more conservative um, over time. And you make a really good point about what's their state of their disease. I mean, I had a patient years ago after the second cycle of um, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, single agent, um, she had a complete response, but developed a fairly nasty pneumonitis. I still think it was only about a grade two because we never admitted her, but she had a complete response. So we said, you know, I don't really feel strongly about restarting this now. And that lasted for two years, two years, the disease didn't progress. So I'm glad at this point that we didn't at the time, um, you know, you can't predict those patients ahead of time, but noting such a great response after just two treatments, we said, Hey, let's ride this response and, and not take the risk. Um, so it's very case by case. Um, who can you treat with immune checkpoint inhibitors? Um, so autoimmune diseases, you know, a lot of times we have, especially things like rheumatoid arthritis. Again, this is very case by case, depending on what the flare would be um, and what that would mean to a patient. Um, you know, what are they on at baseline? Are they already on pretty high dose immunosuppression? So these are all things that we talk to patients about. Um, some data, little bit of data on solid organ transplant. Generally, this is something that I have not given immunotherapy to, but um, this is just data in 39 patients um, that's been reported and 81% of them had graft loss. So, um, 
you know, you're going to deal with a lot of rejection here and even a high death rate. So this is probably something um, I'm not going to do too often. Um, I think the kidney transplant is where the majority of this data is. And a lot of times they'll say, well, I can always fall back on dialysis, I guess. Not that anyone really wants to do that, but um, just throwing out there some data. And after stem cell transplant, there was a 26% mortality rate due to GBHD. So these are all things you're really going to have to consider and discuss with your patients. Not something that I would advocate for necessarily doing, um, but there is a little bit of data out there on it. Um, and then how long do we treat with immune checkpoint inhibitors? So this is the ongoing question. Um, we don't have a lot of data for this. So most of our trials stopped treatment at two years. So if you had metastatic disease and you were on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, a lot of times they stop the immune checkpoint inhibitor at two years. But sometimes patients prefer to keep going if they're tolerating it very well. So how will that, how will that be if they keep going? We have very little data looking at this and I think we need more data. Um, you know, it was discussed in um, this conference when this was discussed, um, you know, the idea was we should keep data longer on these clinical trials um, rather than just stopping with the toxicity data and only looking at overall survival. Maybe we should be looking at this. There was a little bit of data um, reported from the very original keynote trial, 001. Um, and after three years, there wasn't a lot of toxicity. So you can see there, and it certainly wasn't often severe. So you can see in the red would be the severe and you can look at it by different um, type. Um, hypothyroidism was the most common thing that people um, at three years or greater were experiencing, but very rarely to be grade three, five, uh, grade three to five. Now, pneumonitis, um, again, fairly uncommon, less than 5% if you were on that more than three years, but about half of it was severe. So just something to think about. Um, so I think something that we need a lot more data on, a lot of patients want to stay on it because they're saying, hey, it kept my disease under control this long. I'm hesitant to stop. Um, so this is a discussion that we have with patients um, about this. So my key takeaways here are for PD-L1 high disease, um, single agent PD-1 or PD-L1 is still the mainstay of treatment. Um, Dr. Leal, uh, very much... Um, talked about this. Um, from my takeaway, toxicities from immunotherapy, they're often very treatable when identified early. And many times patients can be rechallenged, um, but something you have to discuss on a case-by-case -case basis. Dr. Leo, if you want to um, finish up on your takeaways as well. Yeah. So um, I, I agree with what you stated about the PDL one high. I do think that is the preferred approach for PDL one high expressing tumors in the frontline setting to go with single agent PD-1 or PDL one For the PDL one low or negative, I do think chemoimmunotherapy combination is the way to go. And we need more data in terms of these new strategies. These combination immunotherapy approaches are exciting and they really are critical for the next breakthrough in cancer treatment. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. It's been a great opportunity to talk about this. And thank you very much, Beth, for your contributions. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatment, all found at oncdata.com. To claim CME or NCPD credit for this activity, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen NSCLC hyphen immunotherapy. While you're there, you can check out our other free oncology CME and NCPD offerings. 
Don't forget to follow i3Health on social media for free CME and NCPD, as well as news, exclusive interviews, and more.